Mark chapter 9, uh, verses 2 to uh, 13, God's Word says this, And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them. And a voice came out of the cloud, said, This is my beloved son, listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, Why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. This is the word of the Lord. Saturday, October 3rd, the University of Kentucky Wildcats squared off against the Old Miss Rebels. I, should, I shouldn't say Old Miss, the Ole Miss Rebels in their home opener. UK trailed Ole Miss 7 to nothing in the first quarter when A.J. Rose broke off a long run, outpacing the defensive players, pursuing him en route to what was hoping to be a game-tying touchdown. Except Rose let off the gas around the 30-yard line, began to celebrate, pointing his finger to the heavens, not realizing that defensive players were still in pursuit. He logged an amazing 72-yard run, but he needed to get to 75 in order to get the touchdown. Tackled three yards shy of the goal line because he celebrated too soon. In the ensuing play, Rose on the goal line would get the ball and would approach the goal line, extending the football. You only need to break the plane, is what they say, with the tip of the football. And as he extended, an Ole Miss defensive player hit the ball from his hands, and Ole Miss recovered the fumble. UK would go on to lose the game 42-41. to What a heartbreaker, right? <laughs> I think we got a lot of L fans in here this morning. Like, yeah, who cares about UK? <laughs> The, the transfiguration is a reminder of this, that we are in a race. We are involved in this event. It's a marathon, not a sprint. Jesus in this moment unveils His glory, His divinity, His supremacy for His closest disciples to witness in an effort to spur them towards the goal line. But Peter, in this moment, and all of his glorious wisdom, right? Hey, let's pitch some tents right here and let's just hang out on the mountain. Jesus, we reached the goal line. Peter, pointing to the heavens, thought it was finished. But really, he came up short. 
He wanted to take the comfortable road. He wanted to point to the heavens and let off the gas. He didn't know the road of suffering that awaited not only Jesus, but His closest followers. He still didn't fully understand. He begins to celebrate the touchdown a little too soon, just like A.J. Rose did. And it's the lens that we view this story story through. Church, don't celebrate too soon. We know the ending. We know the victory that we have in Christ. But God has marked out a race for us that we must run, powered by the Holy Spirit. That we don't rest too soon. That we don't celebrate too soon. But we keep enduring through suffering and hardship and pain the path that has been marked before us. We know the God we serve is victorious. That's the good news. That's the hope that we have. We know that Christ has won the victory at the cross. We know that all things are being made new. And we know that Jesus claimed a decisive victory against the adversary as he rolled away the stone and emerged from the grave in his resurrection. But we must endure. We must continue on. And the transfiguration is that fuel. Don't raise your hands in victory just yet. There's yardage yet to run. There's suffering yet to endure. There's souls yet to be reconciled. The glimpse of Jesus is aimed to fuel the disciples and what will be their fate as they witness the fate of Jesus in the coming chapters of the Gospel of Mark. It brings us to our main idea this morning. Our main idea is this. Jesus offers a glimpse of His glory and supremacy as He begins the journey towards His suffering and death. Jesus offers a glimpse of His glory and supremacy as He begins the journey towards His suffering and death. Mark 9, 2, the beginning part of that verse says, And after six days, Jesus took with Him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. I assure you of this, this story happened in history. Jesus was transfigured before the eyes of these three men. Modern scholars try to twist this as maybe Peter dreamt it up, or perhaps it's a post-resurrection story that was mixed up in the timeline and has been reasserted here. No. The transfiguration happened at this point in history before these three men. Jesus was transformed before their very eyes so that they may understand what was coming, that they may have the fuel that they need to continue on in the race that they understood what was at stake. The story at this point in Mark has taken an interesting turn. Mark 8 and 9 begin to turn us as we look towards Jerusalem and what is going to happen in Jerusalem. Jesus is going to walk the road of suffering and hardship and pain to His death on the cross. Jesus has taught, up until this point, awestruck listeners. He's healed the sick and exercised the demonic, displaying His authority. The road to suffering and pain is just beginning. 
Jesus begins to look towards Jerusalem, his final destination. With his disciples in tow, he begins to speak of his impending death and resurrection. They still don't quite understand how this fits into the framework of their messianic expectations, what they expected the Messiah to be like. Peter is still confused. The Word of God says that. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. They don't understand the full picture, even though in chapter 8, in Mark chapter 8, if you remember back a month or so ago, or if you did your homework this week and read kind of leading into this passage, you would know that Jesus has predicted the way that He will die, that He will suffer and that He will die for our sins, but that that's not the ending to the story, but that Jesus will raise from the dead. But in their minds, shouldn't the, the, the Davidic king arrive in triumphant glory with the power of God and ascend to his rightful throne, casting aside the enemies of God, the Romans, blasting them out of the way? The road towards the fulfillment of God's redemptive plan is one filled with this suffering, pain, and hardship. Jesus will ascend to the throne, but it will be accomplished in unexpected ways. Earthly kings take the throne by force, coercion, and familial connection. Jesus takes his throne as the servant king, bearing our sin and iniquity on the cross, all to accomplish the redemptive plan of the Father. It is here that the puzzle pieces begin to make a beautiful but painful picture of God's plan that we are going to journey through in the months to come as we unpack the remainder of Mark. But here this morning, we have a message of hope, and it brings us to our first point. point glory shines. Glory shines. Mark says this by way of Peter. This is Peter's story given to Mark. He says this, and he was the, he is Jesus. Jesus was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant and intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. Why that detail? Because the radiance is coming from God Himself. No one did this to him. He's not reflecting anything. The light comes from within because he is God in the flesh. And the detail there of his clothes being white, in this time, no one wore white clothes because they would get dirty and you couldn't keep them clean. Jesus is in white. It shows his purity and his cleanliness and his righteousness and his holiness. He is wholly set apart. Again, God in the flesh. We have here a glimpse of heaven on earth. The glory of God shines through. You see, from time to time, we see in the Old Testament and in the New Testament that God reveals His, His greater glory. If we think upon Isaiah 6, if you've never read that passage, please read it. It's just a beautiful, beautiful passage. Terrifying passage, too. Because you have Isaiah being commissioned by God 
and God pulls back the veil and Isaiah is in the throne room of God. And when he is confronted with the glory of God, he collapses before the holiness and righteousness of God. The veil that separates the heavenly realm and the earthly realm is pulled back and Isaiah captures a glimpse. And this glimpse, just like the transfiguration for the disciples, this glimpse of God and His holiness is the fuel that Isaiah will use to take on a difficult task. God commissions Isaiah for an incredible task to go and preach and prophesy to people that will never hear. Don't you think he needed to be fueled by something other than his own willpower? He's filled by the power of God because he has witnessed God on his throne. Moses in Exodus 33 asks to witness the glory of God. God places Moses in a cleft in the rock, passing by Moses and offering him a glimpse of his glory. Again, fuel for the calling that Moses has upon his life. Every time Moses was going to fall short, God was there fueling him, giving him the tools that he needed to accomplish his plan. Looking in the New Testament, John records his personal revelation brought to him by Jesus, a revelation recorded in the book of Revelation. And hear this, the book of Revelation is not a book of terror and fear, fear, but a book that points us to the glory and supremacy of Jesus. We should be hopeful when we read that book. It was written to encourage the church. And it should encourage us. The veil again is pulled back. John peers in and writes to encourage the church to do this, to endure, to be hope. You know the ending to the story. Keep going, because this life, to be honest with you, it stinks at times, and it's hard, and it's going to be wrought with suffering and pain and hardship. Keep putting one foot in front of the other. It's fuel for our mission. We have fuel here as we unpack the transfiguration, but we have the great fuel in knowing the ending to the story One, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We know that Jesus in history, in time, has raised from the dead. We don't worship a God or a prophet that is dead. We worship a God who is living and reigning. And we know the ultimate end of the story, that what we witness in our community and in our city and across our country and around the world is not the end of the story, but that Christ is coming back and He is going to make all things new. In this story, Jesus is accompanied by two guests, two key figures of the Old Testament. We're going to call them glorious guideposts. It's our second point. Glorious guidepost. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses. And they were talking with Jesus. I love, someone mentioned to me earlier, I wonder what they were talking about. I don't know. Maybe that the Bible all points to Jesus. Hear this the Old Testament is a guidepost pointing to the work of Christ. We read 
Jesus, we read about Jesus in the Old Testament. He's there in the types and the shadows. It all points to Him. Jesus says so Himself. He says, it's all about me. Again, two key figures are here talking with Jesus. But Jesus is the central figure of the story. He's the one that is transfigured. He's the one that is radiating light. The law and the prophets are represented here as Moses and Elijah are present. What's going on? They are guideposts. They were guideposts. They're guideposts here pointing to the work of Jesus. That's what the Old Testament is. It's pointing God's people to a Savior that will come. To a new covenant that will be brought forth. That God would give us hearts that are alive through the power of the Holy Spirit. That we may walk in His ways through the work of another. Jesus is greater than these two figures. And when you read the Old Testament, I mean, who's greater than Moses, right? He's one of the first redemptive figures that we we meet in the Old Testament. God uses him to free his people from the bondage of slavery. Doesn't that sound familiar? Jesus comes to remove the bondage of the slavery of our sin. Moses leads them out of this slavery and the waters by the power of God are parted as the enemy pursues them. And they make their way through and the water collapses in, taking away their enemy. Freedom. Jesus fulfills what these men represent So the author of Hebrews talks about Jesus being better. Jesus is better than angels. Jesus is better than Moses. Jesus is better. Whenever you read a story in the Old Testament, Jesus is the better version of that story. Jesus is the better Abraham. Jesus is the better Moses. Jesus is the better David. Drawing from the the ESV study Bible, I loved this note that they had on this passage. If you remember back when when Moses is on Mount Sinai and and he's in God's presence and he comes down, it it says that he was reflecting the radiance of God. It says, Moses merely reflected the glory and radiance of God when he encountered God on Mount Sinai. Jesus, hear this, radiates light from inside. He is the light. He is the source of light, radiance, and glory. Jesus, again, hear this, Jesus is greater than Moses and Elijah. Jesus is greater than your good works that you bring before Him. Jesus is greater than you, and that's why you need Him. The disciples ask after the encounter, Mark 9, 11-13, Why did the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? 
But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, that is as, as it is written of him. Uh, I referred to, uh, in your notes, it says Micah 4, 4 to 6. That should be Malachi. I made a mistake. So cross that out in your notes if you go back and read those references of Malachi 4, 4 to 6 and Matthew 17, 13. Don't read Micah because you'll get confused. That has nothing to do with what we're preaching about this morning, as I found this morning when I came across that mistake. Hear this. Matthew's gospel here, getting back to Elijah, Matthew's gospel offers us a little bit more insight within the narrative of the transfiguration. How do we answer this question? You see, Moses and Elijah were not the only guideposts to the Savior, but also the one who would come calling in the wilderness, the last prophet, John the Baptist. He came to prepare the way. He is the fulfillment of the prophecy. He came to turn the hearts of the people and prepare them for the coming of the Savior. He is the Elijah that is to come before the Lord. Matthew 17, 13 says as much. In other words, I want you to hear this. Jesus is the last Savior to come. There's no more time. There's an urgency in the New Testament that the lost would repent and believe upon the Lord. That the church would be light in sharing the good news of the gospel and that Christians would endure in the faith, that they would finish the race, that they wouldn't be running, looking at the goal line, pointing to the heavens and being tackled by the defensive player because they took their eye off the prize. There's no more opportunity. If you sit here this morning and you continue to reject Christ, He's the only hope you have. There's no last chance. There's no final breath where you get to say, okay, now I'm ready, Jesus. The message is urgent. Because one of two things are going to happen. This is going to sound morbid, but either you're going to die or Jesus is going to come back. And before one of those two things happens... You must place your faith and trust in His work in order to be reconciled to the Father or you face an eternity of God's wrath and eternal punishment. Oh, that's so hateful and mean. No, it's the most loving thing I could say to you because it's the truth. You have heard the warning. Your good works do not measure up to the righteousness and holiness of God. You need the work of another. But the good news is is that He came in the person and work of Jesus Christ. He lived the perfect life that you couldn't live. He fulfilled the law, fully obedient to His Father. He went to a cross and died a criminal's death. His blood was shed. He has covered your sin. He raised from the dead on the third day. He has conquered sin and death in the grave. And He offers to you the gift of salvation. Jesus, hear this, Jesus is the only way. There's no other way. If you think that you will stand before God one day and your good works, that God's going to put those in a scale and they're going to measure up to His standard, you will fall short every time. You need Jesus' Jesus's works in that scale. 
And God offers it to you as a gift if you would place your faith and trust in His Son, Jesus Christ. Repent and believe upon Him as Lord and Savior of your life. Our last point this morning. The supremacy of Christ is declared from the heavens by the Heavenly Father. We get a glorious declaration. A glorious declaration. Mark 9, 5-7 says, and Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, that means teacher, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Let's roast some hot dogs and hang out. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. You ever been there before? Uh, you just start babbling stuff off. I remember when I got in trouble with my mom, man, I could come up with lies like this because I was terrified. She had that belt hanging down by her side and I knew I was going to get a whooping. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses, one for Elijah, for he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And then this happens, and a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, and it said, This is my beloved son. I love these three words. Listen to him. Man, when God says, listen to him, you better, what? Listen to him. First off, our favorite disciple, Peter, makes what I'd call, I mean, there's just no way around it. He makes a bonehead move here. He's a knucklehead, right? That's why I relate to him, because I'm a knucklehead too. He wants to celebrate the victory a little too soon. He's quickly forgotten what Jesus had foretold in Mark 8.31. What does Jesus say? The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected and killed, and then he will rise from the dead. Peter, in haste, in this moment, rebukes Jesus in this declaration. He blurts out, no, this is good enough, Jesus. Everybody loves you. You're teaching things. You're healing people. Your fame's growing. And Jesus says, no, there's work left to be done. We're heading to Jerusalem. We're not at the goal line yet. Peter on the Mount of Transfiguration, he's thinking, he said, man, we got Moses here, we got Elijah, Jesus is gleaming, he's bleached whiter than white, we have light up here, we got a few of our closest friends, we got James and John, we're hanging out on the mountain, let's pitch a few tents, let's make a bonfire, grab some graham crackers, marshmallows, Hershey chocolate bar, let's make some s'mores, Jesus. Let's settle down right here for the rest of the night and forever because this is good enough. Remember the, the early celebration illustration, right? A.J. Rose. Surely he had broken loose for the touchdown, but he stops short of the mark because he celebrated too soon. He let off the gas too soon. Peter in this passage is celebrating too soon. He wants to stop too soon. In this moment, he's saying, Jesus, give me comfort. Make me feel good. Meet my physical needs here and now. This is good enough. This is enough Jesus for me. And I can tell you, when I read and studied for this passage this week, 
God convicted me. Where in my life do I stop and say, Jesus, this is good enough right here. The bed's comfortable. I want to sleep in. It makes me uncomfortable to talk to, to people who are lost about Jesus. I'm good just being their friend. I don't want to really cross that line. Do you see where we've stopped short of the mark? Where we get a little too comfortable? Where, I don't know out here, but in California we had t-shirts floating around that said, Jesus is my homeboy. How irreverent is that? Jesus is not your homeboy. Jesus is your Savior. But we fall into that mold sometimes. Oh, Jesus is my homeboy. We're just going for a ride. This is good, just like this. Jesus says, no. There's more work to do. I have more work to do. In church, we have more work to do. God's called us for something more than just resting right where we're at and being comfortable. He's called us to die to ourselves and to live on mission for him. But in this moment, God doesn't, he doesn't let it just pass by. In this divine appointment, the thunderous voice of the Father burst forth, declaring for these disciples to hear, what? This is my beloved son. Listen to him. We don't need your tents, Peter. We need you transformed and sent out on mission. We got work to do. This is the second time that the voice of the Father has spoken. If you'll remember back, Jesus was baptized in Mark 1. The voice declared, the voice of God, the Father declared for Jesus to hear in that moment. He says to Jesus, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. A glorious declaration. Now for all in attendance to hear, for those disciples to hear. He says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. This is God in the flesh. Listen, all authority has been granted to Him according to the will of the Father. Listen, don't celebrate too early. Christian, we need to hear the same thing. We too have witnessed this, the resurrected Christ in our lives. We've witnessed the resurrected Christ in our lives. You who were spiritually dead, before Christ we were spiritually dead have been raised to new life through the power of Jesus. It was His resurrection that saved you from certain death, that He beat death in the grave. His resurrection has loosed the chains that bound us to sin. He has set you free. And you who are alive in Christ have experienced that. Freedom in Jesus... His glorious Holy Spirit has filled us, has given us eyes to see our need of Jesus. God's done all the work. You see, dead people can't revive themselves. God revived you. God gave you life. He says this, listen to me. Obey Him. That which has given you life, obey Him. 
Listen to him. So we don't celebrate too soon. We don't rest too early. We have to keep running the race. A lot of the New Testament books are are written in that manner so that you may continue on running the race. Run the race through the power of God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, keeping your eye on the resurrected Christ, knowing that He has won the victory. We're guaranteed the win. Our mission is not to pitch a tent and roast some marshmallows. It's not to get too comfortable. Therefore, we can apply this passage this way. It's our application. Remember the glory and supremacy of Jesus in the midst of trial, hardship, and suffering. Man, how much trial and hardship have we gone through? We're going to continue to grind and walk forward. Remember the glory and supremacy of Jesus in those moments. I'm sure that Peter thought upon the transfigured Jesus and also he met the resurrected Jesus. All these things. Jesus transfigured. Jesus resurrected. Peter witnessed the Holy Spirit being poured out on Pentecost that the man who asked these foolish things, and don't think yourself better than Peter, we do the same thing. The man that asked these foolish things, the man who was told he would deny Jesus, and he's like, I'm not going to do that, Jesus. I'd never do that to you. And then he does it. That he witnessed the transfigured Christ, the resurrected Christ, that he witnessed the Holy Spirit and he experienced the Holy Spirit being poured out on Pentecost. Now, this foolish man who speaks at the wrong time stands up in the beginning of Acts and proclaims the gospel and thousands of people by the power of the Holy Spirit are reconciled to Christ. That this man who walked a road of suffering and pain and hardship, he wasn't comfortable, trust me. That we have his account In the Gospel of Mark, we believe that this is Peter's account of the ministry of Jesus. We have two letters from Peter, 1st and 2nd Peter, to the churches that this man that walked a road of pain and suffering, that this man that Jesus said, you will die in the same way that I have died, that he refused to be crucified like Jesus, that he was crucified upside down. Why? What would compel a man to do such a thing? but that he had witnessed God in the flesh, that he had seen Christ transfigured on that mountain, that he had witnessed the resurrected Jesus, and that he said, I am convinced that you are the Son of God. I am convinced that you are the Savior, and so I will walk the path that you have set before me. Peter was filled with the hope of the gospel. That the same Jesus who was raised from the dead that said He would die, and three days later that He would raise from the dead, that He is going to accomplish what He said He would do when He returns again. That He will come in glory and He will make all things new. 
skip the next few passages. You can read those on your own. Look to the words of Paul. Romans chapter 8. I think I probably quote Romans chapter 8 more than any other chapter in the Bible. I love it. Paul, another man who suffered for Christ. Paul, who was confronted by Jesus on his way under the name of Saul to Damascus to murder Christians. Confronted by Jesus, radically saved, set out on mission because he felt and he witnessed the resurrected Christ, empowered by the Holy Spirit. He was jailed, not because he stole food, not because he killed somebody, not because he did something wrong, but because he did something right in preaching the gospel. Can you imagine? He was arrested for doing what God had called him to, and he leaves us these words. Do you think that Paul understood suffering? He understood suffering in that he had a physical ailment. We don't know exactly what that is. He called it a thorn in his flesh that he prayed that God would remove, but God was like, no, I need to keep you humble, so I'm going to let that stay with you, buddy. He understood those things, but he also suffered persecution for the cause of Christ. He gives us these words. Romans 8.18, and then we'll skip to uh, 36-39. It's in your notes there. It says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. He's saying, Be hopeful. This isn't the end. He goes on, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. And then he says this, no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. Who is the Him? Jesus. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God and Christ Jesus our Lord. What would compel a man to make a declaration like that, but that he was filled with the power of of the Holy Spirit. He experienced the resurrected Christ. Christian, you have experienced that same power. The resurrection power of Jesus has awakened your dead spirit and given you life. Listen to Him. Listen to Him. We too are witnesses with Peter of the power of Jesus. As he was transformed before the eyes of the disciples to offer a glimpse of his glory and supremacy, so too has he, that is Jesus, resurrected from the dead in glory and supremacy over the curse of sin, which is death. And we are reconciled through faith in this message that we were once far from the Father, looking for the comfortable life, seeking fulfillment in all the wrong places, but God has reconciled us to His Son that we may be able to possess the hope that is the glory of Jesus. In the midst of this, in the midst of pain, suffering, sickness, disease, division, unrest, disunity, God is still reigning. 
And he has his church to be the light to the nations. What is the work that we have left that we are the light of Christ to the world? Seeking to reconcile the lost. Jesus is the beloved son of God. Listen to him. 